We are even in this room come from different parts of the globe and we're coming together centered on the word. It's very, very important for us to know that this is not like a Western religion. This is not like uh, a religion that comes from just one particular place in the world, but it's a global thing. Um, and Jesus is where it centers. And so that's what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit gets poured out onto the church and makes us focus on Jesus. It's like a big spotlight on Jesus. And um, as we think about the law, uh, this is the 10th commandment. And it says, do not covet. You shall not covet basically anything that belongs to anybody else. And we're going to get into uh, what that means today. And I'm going to ask you, you know, like in in class, when the teachers ask you to put on your thinking caps, um, that's what we're going to do today. And so I'm going to ask that uh, you would pray with me in a moment of silence that God would reveal to us the ways in which uh, we have coveted and how that points us to Jesus when we admit that. So let's pray. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, you've been kind to wake us up again today, and you are are good. And what that means for our present circumstances, and this is so terribly difficult to believe sometimes, is that those circumstances are in place for us to come to you. They're conduit by which we come into your presence, and then we come into the realization that your spirit lives inside of us. And that that's what we truly need. That's what we truly long for. That you say the greatest gift that you can give a human being is your presence, your spirit. And that we would come to the realization this morning, in this present moment, that that's what we've been after all along. Um, That's what we're constantly going after. And so would you help us to realize that the kingdom of God is in our midst. And would you give us eyes to see that by the spirit. In Christ's name, amen. Okay. So the Ten Commandments tell us two main things that human beings were made to love God and love people. And so we've been saying the first four commandments are about that love of God and the last six are about love of neighbor. And part of what the commandments do, and this is not to like depress anybody, but it's just accurate. Part of what the commandments do is that it reveals our lack of doing that well. And the Bible has a summary word for that. It's called sin. And there is no other command that highlights our inadequacy to live up to that standard than the 10th commandment, which says you shall not covet something that someone else has. Now, what is covet? What does that mean? Uh, To covet means to desire or find pleasure in the thought of having something that doesn't belong to you. Okay. Not all desires are bad in Scripture. That's very clear in Scripture. But coveting is what we would call a misdirected desire. It's a desire going after something that's misdirected. So most most worldviews in history tell you you ought to do good to others. You ought to obey whatever God you believe exists or whatever ethical standard that you're trying to live by. But Judeo-Christianity comes along and says it's it's like a lot more than that. Um, Not only are you supposed to be content But you are forbidden to even long after that which isn't yours. And I mean anything. So the early church father, St. Augustine, struggled with this. 
he really struggled with this. And when he was a non-Christian, in his youth, he stole a pear from his neighbor. And what was so intriguing to him about that experience is that he said he liked the thought of stealing the pear more than actually getting it. Like he liked the sort of arousal, if you will, of taking something that that wasn't his. And he said, even when he would pray to to God, he's like, God, please change me. He's like, please make me chase. Please make me sexually pure. But he said, if he was completely honest, in the back of his mind, he was secretly saying, but don't do it just yet. Um, Now, I had a conversation with someone two weeks ago. And they, they asked this wonderful question. They said, I really love the teaching of Christianity and I sense it to be true with my whole heart. But I want to keep my options open in my life. Can I have Christ and keep my options open for other things? Now, that's what Augustine wrote his confessions on. Like, what do you do with that party, that desire that like wants to submit to God But inside, it ain't happening. And there's a part of you that's like wanting other things. And he spent years and years running after what he thought would soothe that desire through relationships or career. And he never could like quite get there. He was always after it. And so he had the thought. He's like, what if if that great chasm in my heart was actually God-shaped? What if it was made for God? And what if when I grab a hold of him, um, I will stop coveting? other things. So, um, you know, we're in the season of, of Top Gun, right? Yes, in Top Gun. Uh, I know this is maybe a little bit too risky to say, but, but what, what if God was the thing that was meant to take my breath away, right? Um, that's what this command undergirds. That's what uh, is underneath this command. We'll come back to that here in a second, but three points. We're going to talk about the power of coveting the weakness of trying to stop coveting and the realization of what you already have. And so point one, the power of coveting. And I actually want you to turn. I didn't want to have Ashna read four passages, but we need to look at Romans seven. I want you to actually turn to Romans seven on your device or in your Bible in front of your pew. And I'm going to read this to you because this is where St. Paul in the New Testament describes his experience with coveting. Romans 7, verses 7 through 11, this is what it says, and it is super profound, super deep. Paul says, what shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet, if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said, you shall not covet. Now think about this language here. Verse 8, but sin... Seizing an opportunity through the commandment produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that proved life to me proved to be death. For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me and through it killed me. Now, very deep. What's he saying? Super profound. Whenever we look to the law to see how we're measuring up, to see how actually good we are as people, as people who like love God and love other people. When we look to the law to do that, 
you're immediately exposed as inadequate. And Paul says, in case you didn't believe that, how are you doing with not coveting? Because this is what this commandment teaches. A true human being that flourishes in the world, they're not only uh, content with what they have, but when they see their neighbor's stuff, they're more happy for their neighbor to have that nice stuff than they would be if they had it. When they see their neighbor's spouse, and that spouse is just gorgeous, and they got it all, they're very happy for that spouse. And they want that for that spouse and their neighbor. They're very happy when they see their neighbor's car, which in their day, it would have been like an ox or a donkey. And they're like, I'm so glad you have that nice car, and I don't have one quite as nice. They're happy about how successful their friends are. They're very, very happy when their friends make tons and tons of money. They're they're happy when their friend makes the 4.0 and you make the 3.2. As happy as if you had made the 4.0. And they're just as happy when they lose the game as when they win the game. And Paul's like, how you doing with all that? How you doing with not coveting? This command really showed Paul what was happening in his heart. And and what's going on here is that Paul's saying envy is so envy, wanting something that you don't have is so destructive. When you look to a person in front of you and you say, I really, really, really want what they have. I want their charisma. I want their competency. I want their physique. I want their knowledge their athleticism, and then you begin to measure yourself by what you lack. We all do this. Um, When I personally, when I stand in the presence of somebody that's like super duper successful in some realm, um, I, I don't know about you, I get super uncomfortable. And it's because I have this mixture going on in me, like I wanna be them, and I want them to like me. And like at the same time, like I kind of want to praise them, you know. And what Paul is saying is that what's going on is that my insecurity in the command is mixing together. And it's making me so insecure that I can't be present enough to move towards that person and love them, which is what I was created to do and what they need. That sin kills me from being me and bearing God's image to another human being just because they're like successful, you know? You know, maybe what's underneath uh, much of our frustration in this life (laughs) is that we can't step out of our front door without comparing ourselves to others and measuring. And God is telling these Israelites, you know, know, this is what's going to happen. You're going to go into the promised land. I'm going to give you success. And you're going to like build houses and you're going to plant vineyards and you're going to get married. And there's this very tricky thing that happens in the heart of a human being. When you have all that stuff, you're going to look over at your neighbor and you're going to see that their house is like a little bit different than yours. And maybe in your mind you go, it's a little bit better. Or you look at their spouse or you look at their stuff and then you're going to begin to think, what if I had that and not this? And God says, be, be careful. Don't covet. 
Um, I don't know who said this. It's attributed to Teddy Roosevelt. Uh, I learned it from my mother-in-law. Um, but he said, comparison is the thief of joy. And this, I love that. When I, when I was a RUF campus minister, um, one of my students, she's a female, she tweeted this quote from Tina Fey's book, Bossy Pants. Anybody ever read this? It's incredible. Um, and the quote was about like how impossible the standards are for women in the world. And I'm going to I'm going to summarize it just to make it a little bit more appropriate. But, but the gist was like every girl is expected to have like a conglomeration of physical assets from other women across the globe. And Tina Fey said, I mean, clearly the only person who has lived up to this standard is Kim Kardashian. And as we all know, she was created by Russian scientists to sabotage our athletes. <laughs> and then she said, this is why we're all struggling. <laughs> Because we're compared to this impossible standard. And, and you know, most, most Christians say, you know, at this moment, and we, we failed. The church, the church has failed on how to address this. We just say, oh, you know, just love yourself. You're so beautiful in God's eyes. And, and you shouldn't be so envious. And, and like, while that's, that's true, that doesn't go to the root of the problem. Now, what's, what's the root of the problem here? The root and the power of coveting is that at the end of the day, I want things more than I want God. And that's seen in my extreme dissatisfaction in what I currently have. That's why I have a wondering eye. Because I'm not full of God. That's why I'm constantly comparing. Constantly measuring myself by other people. And constantly feeling like I need what others have. And so how do we, you know, Paul, Paul says that he can be low and he can be high and it doesn't affect what he feels like he needs, his mood. In Philippians 4, this is what he said, you know, athletes always put this verse on their, under their eye. Paul, he had lost. He was in prison and he's like, this is, this is how I can be strengthened. Uh, in all things, because I know the gospel in the ter- most terrible circumstance. And so I can be brought low. I can be brought high because Je- if I have Jesus, I'm full of him. And it doesn't matter what happens in my life. I don't feel like I constantly need things. And so what, what I find so incredible about Psalm 130, um, and this it's helped me so much with my own coveting in my own heart over the years, because this is what verses five and six say. It says, I wait for the Lord. My soul waits. And in his word, I hope my soul waits for the Lord more than watchmen for the morning, more than watchmen for the morning. You know what the psalm is saying? This person is losing sleep over the hope of an encounter with God. That's what's happening. I don't know about y'all, but that ain't what keeps me up at night. Like what keeps me up at night is futuristic or financial. But before I got married, it was relationships. And all of y'all are single. You can probably relate to this. But, you know, I remember driving from Nebraska to Texas through the night three times. You know how dumb that is? Like 
like almost falling asleep like multiple times and having, having a wreck. You know why I did that? Because Sarah was my Psalm 130. She's the one that kept me up at night. She can't live up to that standard. And what this psalmist is saying is that God is what keeps him up at night. That he in some ways has learned to covet or desire God in the same way that he covets and desires things on this earth. Now, you know, again, like we we tend to get really tricky here and we say, well, like if you just try harder and you love God more, um, you can get there. And that's not what Christianity or the Old Testament teaches. Like the weakness of trying to stop coveting ain't going to work. And this is why Christianity is different than anything else in the world, because this psalmist in Psalm 130 is in a bad situation. He says, out of the depths, I cry to you, O Lord. Now, we don't know if that was a situation that he created for himself or that was an external thing that was thrust upon him. But think in terms of this commandment, right? What happens when something is off in your life? When something is there that you don't want to be there? When there's a circumstance, you're like, I don't like this. What happens? We want a different circumstance. And this psalmist prays in the midst of that. He says, oh, Lord, if you should mark iniquities, who could stand? But with you, there is forgiveness that you may be feared. Now, why is that important? It's because every time your life isn't going the way that you want it to go. What do we do? We worry. We get frantic. We want out. And we look at somebody else and we say, I wish I had what they had and not what I have. And what this psalm teaches is that when that circumstance comes into your life, when you feel in your heart of hearts frenetic for something different. Don't just try harder, but think about something. Think about this, that God forgives you of your iniquities. He frees you from guilt And that causes you to fear him. Fearing God means that your attention is completely focused on him and he gives you meaning. And at first it's like, that doesn't seem like it's addressing my problems, right? But think think about it. What, What if there is a very specific reason why you are not getting the things that you want to get right now? Particular to your story. That God is training you, teaching you. Like what if God has... And what appears has you like what appears to be a bad situation because he wants you to realize something that he's he's a God who knows you better than you know yourself. And you were made to cry out to him and to wait for him and to desire him. And until you do that, he is gracious to frustrate you. Look, if I'm in a canoe, OK, I'm I'm canoeing down a river which I wish I did more often. I like canoes. And I hit a rock that I I couldn't see there. And I have to like float over to the side and the stupid rock messed up my canoe. And I see all my friends canoeing past and their canoes are like real nice and shiny and they're like happy and carefree. And I later realize, and I'm like jealous. I'm like, why can't that happened to me. And, and I later realized that like a mile down the river, there's a massive drop off. And that if my canoe had not got hit by that rock, I would, I would lose the whole thing and I would probably lose my life. Like if, 
if that perspective on what sin is, what we're called to do, who we're called to be in this world, if you had that perspective on your life, it would totally change how you assess your own problems and how you assess other people's fortune. It would change what you desire. Now, here's the promise and why life isn't about striving or trying harder. When you realize that God has been so kind in your unmet longings, that's when he's got you. That's when the Holy Spirit has been implanted into the heart of a human being that God's presence doesn't just make you content, but sees the overflow of good in exactly what you have and where you're at and where you've been, which changes a person into somebody that's loving and peaceful and patient and kind and self-controlled in any and every circumstance. Against, Against such things there is no law, Paul says. Meaning, true happiness is about a change of perspective in the present. And it's looking in a different direction. It's called repentance. Our flesh tells us that happiness is the, in the attainment of more and more stuff or different and different stuff. You know, Don Draper and Mad Men, he, he says happiness is the moment right before you need more happiness. <laughs> um, very different than what Jesus says about the kingdom of God, which is in your midst. And do you think by trying harder, you're even going to come close to the innocence and the beauty that we felt even as children? You know, I keep keep trying to get back to this place in my life. I remember riding in the back of my Meemaw's car. It was about this time of year. I was probably like 12 and I saw this field and it wasn't even particularly pretty. And I just remember thinking, that field is like perfect. Like in Georgia, you can see the, the like wetness on top of the grass because they're so humid. And I just remember thinking like, oh my gosh, this is beautiful. And I think I've been trying to get back to that field my whole life. I was talking with Ambrose last night and she, she was saying, you know, I think of life as a, a line that embodies perfection and then we as human beings we kind of go in and out we can't stay in it quite but we go in and out so we experience little glimmers of it I was like girl you're gonna be a philosopher Um, and I, I think part of part of the reality of our situation is that if you were to try to stay in that, it, it vanishes. And what Christianity teaches you is, is that you, you can't try to get Jesus. Like, he's a gift. And he implants himself inside of you by, by his spirit. And that's, in some ways, not controllable. Christianity is first about, this is why we've said every single week, before God gives you anything to do, the Ten Commandments come to you in a place of freedom. They say, I'm the Lord your God who, who set you free. Now go do these things. And that's why 
uh, not coveting is not just about trying harder, but it's in the realization of what you already have, what is already in your midst. And the Spirit giving you eyes to see that. One more, one more uh, lengthy example for you. Um, there's this movie called uh, The Maiden Heist, where these three guys fall in love, literally, with th- three works of art. They fall in love with these pieces of art. And the main character is played by Christopher Walken is a security guard at an art museum. And he loves this painting called The Lonely Maiden. And the whole movie is him devising a plan to steal the painting. He loves it so much. But during all this, his wife really, really wants to take a vacation to Florida. And she's like constantly pestering him. Like, I want to go to Florida. And he begins to basically covet a different wife and covet a different life. And then he finally, they finally make it to Florida at the very end of the movie. And he's snorkeling in the ocean. And his wife calls to him from the beach And as he's approaching her, she has like the exact same pose as the lonely maiden. And in the painting, the birds in the background are like the exact same in the painting. And he realizes for the first time that his wife is what he had been longing for all along in this painting. And I think that's the role of the Holy Spirit when it comes to... Jesus in your life. That Christ really is what you've been after all along, whether you realized it or not. And what you're really already looking for is the Holy Spirit, this process, slow process of him bringing to your awareness that you have it in the gospel. And it's characterized by, you know, what Thomas said. It's like kind of ordinary stuff by watching and waiting, which is what Psalm 130 talks about. And it's because, like, God doesn't like clickbait approaches to anything. And I think we all know that deep down, that he's far better than anything that we can ever experience. But it's in a much different way. Now, um, this is we're going to we're going to wrap up here, but like. I didn't want to end on this command because I wanted to talk about Psalm 1 next week and how to get this in, in our practical lives and embodied. But I do want to say something as the church, particularly in the West, to you. And I think one of the great challenges, specifically with us, is that we can attain almost anything that we want instantaneously. I mean, this is why... Uh, Amazon exists, you know, like you get what you want real, real, real fast. Most of us do. And I, I had a conversation two weeks ago with two different people. It was a man from Venezuela and a woman from Turkey. And they were both, it was fascinating. They were both wondering whether they should believe in Jesus. They had questions about whether they want to follow Jesus or not. And as they were discussing this, they were around a bunch of Americans, most of them Christians. And they both said independently from one another, as they were observing the American way, they both said, you know, this isn't a game for me. Like this is about life and death for me. And I I believe the reason why they said that is that they they looked out at American Christians and I think they just see it's something that we do. It's like an adult. It's like not essential. Now, 
I think part of how we got there is that we are used to getting everything that we want all the time. And the great thing about how God works in our lives is is not that he just stops that and makes us stop coveting, but it's when you begin to realize God has been so very kind in his prevention of things in my life. He's been kind. When you see like the whole river, you get a view of the whole river and, and you begin to think like that rock, that that rock was maybe the most gracious thing that could have happened in my life. And next week we're going to talk about how to make this a practice in our lives. But, you know, you know how you get a child to play with a different toy. You show them a better toy, right? And you dangle it in front of them. Um, here's, the, here's the number one way to combat coveting. It's through meditative thanksgiving and delight. It's when you mull over in your head what you already have and you say, God, I'm so thankful that I even have a family, that I even have a house, that I even have a car. Like, yeah, my neighbor's got a better one. That's true. But when you, when you go to bed thinking like, I don't even deserve to have a bad circumstance. Like what gives me the right to even have the privilege of even thinking about a circumstance to begin with? How, did, how do we get there? It's through meditating on the law, which is fulfilled in, in Christ. And what Christ says, he's like, I'm going to write that law in your heart. I'm going to spiritually make your heart alive to the law so that you can begin to embody this stuff in the world. And when that becomes your demeanor, you can actually look at your neighbor and be truly happy for what they have. You can begin to look at their stuff and say, I don't need what they have, but I wonder what I could give them with what I have out of what I have. And coveting, it it just it requires meditating and imagining and then taking that which isn't yours. And when you replace that deep void in your hearts with with God's embodied love in Christ, what you begin to do is that you begin to practice giving and goodness and healing and resurrection And Psalm 1 says, that is the practice of eternal life. It yields its fruit in its season and its leaf does not wither. It's eternal. Coveting is like chaff that blows away in the wind and goes into nothingness. We just sing about it. And so we're going to close up the series on the Ten Commandments through Psalm 1 because it is how we get uh, the law lived, how we embody it in the world. Um, so let's pray and I'm actually going to lead you in the assurance, uh, confession and assurance. And then Thomas is going to lead us in the table. So let's pray. Father, we thank you that you have given us, uh, the Holy spirit, which teaches us that Christ really is the, the human heart's deepest desire. And we ask Lord that as we taste and see that at this table, that we would know that, that there's a day coming for all of us um, who are in Christ that when when we when we really will um, lose sleep over you when we really won't go after things that we know won't satisfy and Lord help us to hope in that help us to continue to know that that's our future 
And that when we practice uh, resurrection life, when we practice Holy Spirit living, um, you give us a taste. Be kind.